Your website is the front door of your business, but the way teams build and optimize is broken. Stuck between inflexible templates and cumbersome codependent solutions, there's a better, faster way. Enter Webflow, a visual-first platform that empowers you to create freely. Now you can ship web pages in weeks instead of months and save millions in development costs. These are the real results for companies like Orange Theory, Dropbox, and IDEO. Get started today at webflow.com. Webflow, more than a website builder. Hi, this is Nadine Dietz, host of CMO Moves. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thanks so much for stopping by today and to give you a quick overview on what to expect. CMO Moves is all about game-changing leaders, their incredible journeys, the moves that they've made, and most importantly, their personal stories of how they got to be the leaders of some of the world's most exciting brands. I hope you'll enjoy their stories as much as I do and take away a few tips and some inspiration for your day. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to CMO Moves. Today, I have the great pleasure of having Charlie Cole with me. Charlie has two incredible roles that come together in a really cool way. He is the chief e-commerce officer for Samsonite globally. He's also the chief digital officer for Toomey. Charlie, hi, and welcome to the show. Hi, Nadine. Nice to be here, I guess, virtually. I'm not, we're not actually together, but that doesn't really matter. No one needs to know that. That's right. Okay, but I think everybody does now. So. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. I'm so happy you could join me today. Yeah, I'm, I'm pumped about it. It's something um, I can't decide whether we're the two most self-important people on earth or we actually are that busy, but this took a while for us to get together finally, so I'm stoked we're doing it. <laughs> I'm going to say it was all your fault, actually. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's true. I'm pretty yeah. sure that's true. <laughs> uh, I can't keep up with how many countries you go to. So speaking of countries, you guys are in 108 countries, and I know you go to almost all of them, if not all of them. <laughs> Tell me about this crazy role of yours. Well, and, and look, like, I think it is a little uh, confusing because when you hear the two names, Samson and Toomey, I think you think of two brands. But Samson, in the context of my role, it is far more analogous to a company like Procter & Gamble, right? So we own brands ranging from American Tourister, High Sierra, Hartman, Spec, eBags, Gregory, Toomey, Samsonite, um, you know, Leepole three brands in Latin America that you wouldn't have heard of unless you lived down there, a brand in India you wouldn't have heard of unless you lived there. So, you know, I sort of have a role. I came by way of the Toomey acquisition. So I was the chief digital officer at Toomey. Toomey was wholly acquired by Samsung in August of 2016. And then recently I, I've been promoted to kind of oversee the portfolio globally from a digital perspective. And, and digital to us means obviously our owned and operated direct consumer websites like samsonite.com, samsonite.co.jp, toomey.cn, whatever it may be but then also our digital relationships with wholesalers and marketplaces like the Amazon, Amazon's, Alibaba's, Zalora's, Lazada's of the world, right? So it's basically, if you're being touched digitally by one of our brands, it, it rolls up to, to me in some form or function. Wow. Okay. That's a lot of responsibility. And uh, I, I know we're going to get into this pretty heavily later on, but you certainly are an expert in that space. So I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about that. But before we do that, can you talk a little bit about your team structure, the folks that are either on your team or your, your peer structure, just to kind of understand how it all comes together? Yeah. And, and I'll talk about it in two different ways, right? I'll talk about it from the holding company perspective. And then I'll talk about it from the actual kind of like, let's call it like centralized PL perspective where, so the holding company is actually quite simple, right? I mean, I have a, 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 region lead that rolls up to me, right? So we have um, a gentleman in Asia, gentleman in Europe, Latin America, 
uh, North America, and they all just sort of work independently and are the digital lead in their region. And that's the predominant group of people that I talk to. But in the Toomey context, I actually have a really, I guess, strong view of how a team should be structured in a digital environment. And for me, it's all about functional leadership, right? So I have a digital marketing lead, creative lead, merchandising lead, tech lead, operations and customer service lead, and then a wholesale lead, right? So what that really means is those five people that are on the direct consumer side, creative, merch, tech, marketing, and ops, they are basically cross-functional leads, right? Because the the one thing I would say, and, and it's a bit of a controversial statement, because I think digital leaders can get a lot of publicity because it's obviously the fastest growing sector in most of retail, if not all of retail. The fact of the matter is that digital is a support role, right? And I, and I believe this core to my heart in the sense that my job is to support the brand and product that we produce. You know, we are not the straw that turns, stirs the drink, right? We're just an ice cube. And so I really do want my digital marketing lead to be constantly interfacing with our brand marketing partner as much as she's interfacing with me. And I think that's a really important thing. So I know that was a bit of a long-winded answer. Five functional leads report to me on the P&L side. And then we do have a gentleman who kind of oversees the, the wholesale world as well, because that's a little bit apples and oranges as opposed to DTC. Okay, so no, that's super helpful. But it is a little unfortunate that you mentioned an ice cube and a straw because it is Friday afternoon. And that kind of <laughs> reminds me of a cocktail that should have my name on it at some point. Um, well, yeah, well, we can solve that problem relatively quickly, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> oh my God. I know, but I'm supposed to be on a cleanse. Shh, don't tell anybody. Uh, okay, um, anywho. Well, let's, okay, so super cool. Um, let's talk about then you being an ice cube. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So it, in your role, I mean, like you said, you have to really cover the full gamut of digital and there's so much to that. Can you talk a little bit about some of the exciting things that you're thinking about right now and what's important to factor into your portfolio of tools? Yeah. And so some of the stuff is, is really elegant and sexy and fun. And some of the stuff is like ultra tactical, right? So one of the things I'm really proud of with our holding company across the world is we're now all starting to speak the same language in the form of analytics, right? So it doesn't matter whether you're managing a team in Benelux or managing a team in Southeast Asia or managing a team in Latin America, return rate, conversion rate, average order value, right? And this might sound like the most obvious thing on earth, but if you can get together a list of metrics that are ubiquitous, right, that are remarkably important around the world, you can start to identify trends and also strategies that, you know, are going to build your business. And so for me, like the first core question when we started this kind of movement towards globalizing our management is what should be owned and operated by the countries or decentralized and what should be owned and operated globally or centralized? And I think the only way you answer that question is to do two things. Number one, spend some time in each region. Right. And that's the, depending on your point of view, that's the hard part of the easy part. Like some people love traveling to Sao Paulo and Mexico City. Other people would rather stay home. But the fact of the matter is, is that like the cultural nuance in certain countries, I just don't think you can manage it globally. Right. Like the, the product needs of Korea are patently different than the product needs of Denmark or Holland. Right. Because earnestly, the average height difference between call it Holland or the Netherlands and Korea for a male is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of six to 10 inches, right? So you can't have the same backpack, 
so product cannot be globalized. You know what I mean? Like, so, so there's all these nuances that I think you really have to, to get in the weeds uh, in, in physically and, and understand kind of those regions. But then the other piece is, once you start to identify pain points around the world, then you can figure out what should be centralized, right? So all of us have a pain point of data. Oh, well, maybe we should create a global customer data platform that we can all access and all have, you know, and then you start getting global scale because there's more data passing through it. And so I think that kind of centralized versus decentralized conversation is probably the most tactical. It's not remarkably sexy, but it's a lot of fun to talk about. But then the sexy stuff is, okay, what can we do around the world that everybody wants from a product perspective? You know, where, where can we use our scale? I mean, we, we're close to $4 billion in revenue. I mean, that's an advantage. Like, where is our defensible scale global in nature? And so we're talking about creating global warranties where, if you think about it, Nadine, if you have a problem with a suitcase, where is it going to happen, right? It's probably not at home. So if you buy an Amazon basic suitcase, let's just say for the sake of, of, of argument, and you're from Cincinnati, Ohio, and you travel to Japan and it breaks, now what? Like who's gonna help you? And, and that's like one of those places that we have a defensible scale where we can do something really special for our customers. And so, you know, that gamut becomes very, very wide, but it, it's kind of like zeroing in on where your core difference, core difference is gonna be. Okay, so that's so cool. I love the term defensible scale. Um, you know, and this happens frequently in the podcast when I'm recording and somebody will say something and be like, oh, that's a great title. Um, so that might be your title at the end of the right. day. All right. There you go. So let's talk about defensible scale. So that's super cool. What kind of tools do you use to continue to build into that? Like, I know you've been um, really, really engaged with understanding all things AI, VR, AR, chatbots. Yeah, I could go on and on and on. Are there some really cool tools that you're sampling with now that you're like, that's, that's the ticket or, you know, the verdict's still out, but need to keep playing with that? Well, I do think a customer data platform is becoming table stakes for, for any big multi-channel business, right? And, and customer data platform, I think it's its first year where it's going to have like a Gartner Quadrant or a Forrester Wave or whatever the heck you want to call it. But it, it used to be, you know, there was CRMs and DMPs and DSPs and attribution analytics engines and, and all this stuff, right? And so to simplify in my mind what a CDP is, a CDP combines all that stuff, right? So when I'm looking at Nadine, I can look at her email open send click behavior, her browse behavior, her purchase history, her warranty claim behavior, her customer service data, and you are one record in one place that has all those nuances of your customer journey with our brands, right? So I think that's one of the funnest areas because all those, especially artificial intelligence or machine learning or whatever you want to call it, um, the way AI is positioned today, it's only as good as the data set that you are pushing into it in order to learn, right? In order to optimize, right? So the better of that initial data platform you have, the more intelligent AI is going to become. This is Amazon's not so secret sauce because they have so much data passing through their cloud, they can learn faster and better and be more predictive than anybody else simply based on the numbers game. The more data points you have in an algorithm, the more accurate the algorithm becomes. It's just that simple. And so for us, that's one of the coolest places I work. And it seems sort of weird to say that like, one of the most interesting thing we're working on is this nuanced, sticky technology thing that's a real pain to build but it basically becomes the lifeblood of your larger customer strategies. And so I think that's an area I have a lot of passion for. Okay. That, that's also super cool. 
you know, it reminds me of when I was a customer centricity consultant years ago. Um, and we used to say garbage in, garbage out because uh-huh. uh, that means we have such a tough job. So um, not to get too detailed here, but I'm just curious, like, how do you ensure that you've got not just a lot of data, but the right data? Well, I, I'll give you sort of an antithetical answer. Make sure you have all of it, right? <laughs> but and what I mean by that is, I don't think, I think you and I, Nadine, could have a conversation over our aforementioned cocktail and come up with a very thoughtful thesis on what data is going to be the most predictive, right? And maybe we would agree and say, you know what, the most predictive piece of data we have is when somebody files a warranty claim. That's when we got to hit them with an offer. You know, that's when they're going to be ready to buy that next piece of luggage because they're going to go down the world and they're going to be like, oh, I'm out of warranty, blah, 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 blah. Right. And, and that's a really thoughtful and I think logical point of view with Toomey, specifically Toomey, when someone files a warranty claim, we've actually ran kind of tests. A lot of people grow very attached to their bags. Right. And the last thing they want is for you to offer them 60, 70, 80 percent off a new product because that's their bag. Right. That's the thing that really matters to them. They don't want your new bag. They want their bag. And it's a great example of. Even though you and I have been doing this for a long time, and even though we thought about it and came up with a thoughtful response, it isn't the most predictive thing. So what is the most predictive thing? The answer is you don't know, right? And if you don't know, the only way to let an algorithm decide for you and to not guess is to have every single piece of data you can flowing through this platform. And, and, and that's why I say, although it's antithetical, it, it just makes sense because the whole basis of machine learning is that it's not going to guess. It's going to ingest what they give you, and there, there is no bias, right? And so all of us have personal biases that cause us to make incorrect conclusions. That's the entire beauty of having a really cohesive data set that compiles all the stuff that if you or I were doing it, maybe we'd just throw it aside because it seemed trivial, but it ends up being the most predictive piece of the entire algorithm. I'm so glad you said that. I mean, you just opened a door to like 16 other conversations but I'm gonna I'm gonna key in on this notion of bias and that we all have bias. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've done a lot of work uh, with different groups around this, and uh, I'm just curious how you think about you know the diversity on your team, especially in technology and data science. Like, how do you think about bringing diverse thought together? Well, you know, I, I said I've said before that I think one of my biggest learnings in life is. I think it's really natural to surround yourself, especially when you're younger, with people who are like you, right? So I grew up and I was playing sports and I was a statistics person. And so I really wanted to be around other type A numbers people, right? Like that was just who I was drawn to because that's that was my sort of persona, if you will. But I think the key to having a really good team is having people who think fundamentally different. Right. And just like completely different. And, and that means a lot of stuff. That means different cultures, different genders, different um, ages. Like, I, I you know, I, I don't want a team full. And I think a lot of people will be like, oh, man, I want this team. The last team I want is a team full of 10, two years out of business school, Harvard MBAs. Right. Like that sounds like the worst team on earth to me because all, <laughs> because all of them. And I would say the same thing of I don't want 10. MIT computer scientists, like PhDs in computer scientists, like you're going to get just one sliver and it's a very intelligent and a very educated and a very expensive um, sliver, but you're going to get the single point of view. 
and frankly, the world's just not that simple, right? So, you know, I think about my team, um, our director of marketing, and I'll talk specifically to me because that was sort of the team I managed directly. Our director of marketing is, you know, from New Jersey. She's, you know, maybe, you know, early 30s. Our merchandiser is also local. She's probably a little older, maybe like 33 to 35. I'm going to get in so much trouble for saying this, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, our head of technology is probably more 40s. He's from India. He's kind of a classic technologist. Um, our head of operations is year early 20s. She grew up helping customers at Toomey. You know, it's just like we have a really diverse mix and, and it's, you know, it's gender mix. I think it's 50-50 down the middle, female, male. It's age mix. It's, it's you know, diversity mix. Because you know, I don't need somebody else to think like me. That's what I'm there for, right? I want people who think fundamentally different. So like the, I always joke that the dream team is you have a data scientist, uh, somebody who's like a sculptor, uh, another person who is like a painter, uh, somebody else who's a computer scientist. And then I want someone who actually like knows how to sew, right? Who like creates <laughs> product. But because I, I, I think those perspectives are, the whole idea is to surround yourself with people who are going to help you do things that you suck at. And there's nothing wrong with that. But so often we end up like hiring a persona as opposed to really seeking out an alternative way of thinking. Okay. Uh, so awesome. Awesome. And I remember that uh, a while ago we wrote an article and gosh, you know, we've done a couple things together where we either case studies or an article or what have you, but you use the term about leapfrogging incrementality. You have a real thing against incrementality. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, the I remember that article now that you mention it. Um, God, we're old. Uh, we are old. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so retail, uh, especially retail, is obsessed with incrementality. And it's a hard, and to be fair, it's a very hard cycle to break. And in certain areas, it's just the facts of life, right? Year over year comps. I mean, you've never worked in retail. And you know, every time you receive a daily report, that says you made $4 last year, you made $3 this year. And then your boss inevitably is like, dude, what's going on? And it's just like, all right, you know, like, and, and this is a really systemic problem because ultimately, how are most people compensated? Most people are compensated on a salary and a bonus. And what's the bonus based on? The previous year's revenue, right? So what that ends up being is a self-fulfilling prophecy that you're going to do what's right on a year over year basis. But as you and I both know, big breakthroughs, big breakthroughs mean huge swings and huge misses, right? And so think about Amazon, for example, like imagine Amazon, how long did it take them to become profitable, right? Because they were building an infrastructure and investing and doing all these things. And, and that took huge long range outputs. And, and Jeff Bezos, to his credit, just basically said, hey, just don't invest in us. Like, forget about us. Like, don't worry about us. If you don't like what we're doing, if you don't like the fact that we're investing in infrastructure and we're losing money, don't buy our stock. Because what he was doing behind the scenes was giving himself a warehouse network to allow him to do Amazon Prime, which we learned this week has over 100 million members. That was not a year-over-year -year incremental success. That took a really big bloody swing. And so I think you have to serve the incrementality masters. I mean, Lord knows we do. We're a publicly traded company, right? That is the facts of life. But we also need to create an environment that allows us to take really big swings, which means there are going to be some misses. And, and I think that sort of balance is, is the key to being a long, like long running successful business. Okay. So do you want to share any 
big swings that you've taken or feel particularly proud of or that you maybe took a big swing and it caused a mystery, but you still learned from it? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, why don't I do both? So one that I think with the Toomey brand is, is an amazing success story. And it's just kind of, we look back at it a year, year and a half later. Um, we have this best-selling collection called the Voyager, right? And Voyager is our best-selling women's collections. It's a really meaningful eight-figure revenue stream for the brand. And I think there's an old adage out there, which is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so we have this business that's growing like a weed, like just growing like crazy. And everybody's happy. It's like this unbelievably reviewed. Everybody's wearing our Voyager product, particularly the backpacks. And we were looking at our data and we said, you know, every single person who doesn't buy Voyager pivots and starts looking at leather stuff. Right. And this is the wonder of digital and the wonder of today's uh, analytics engines. And we're like every single person that abandons, and, and I'm obviously using hyperbole, but a lot of people then go and go sweet to a leather product and then abandon the site. We're like, what if we made Voyager and leather? And that's a big swing, right? Because now you're taking something that's growing year on year, multiple percent, I mean, double digits percents. It's an eight figure business. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to actually potentially do skew degradation and we're going to dilute the brand potentially, but it's, we're going to do it based on data. And we're going to try to basically minimize the potential adverse effects. And so we're going to launch it as an online exclusive. Launched it as an online exclusive, sold out. Okay, great. Now let's bring it to our 40 flagship stores. 40 flagship stores, sold out. Okay, now let's put it in all of our stores, sold out. Okay, now let's bring it to wholesale, right? So that was a really big bet because we took arguably our most important sector of our business and diluted it, right? And we added risk and we added diversity to it. And it was a higher AOV, right? It was a higher, it was a higher, excuse me, AUR. And so that was a big swing that was built on data that worked. Now, another swing that, that we've taken um, that failed, I've always really struggled with the idea of, okay, people who know Toomey in particular, they know why it's great. They've used it. They know what, about the quality. They know about the ballistic nylon also being used at Bulletproof Fest and all that stuff. But what if you're on the Toomey site for the first time in your whole life, you've never heard of the brand, you went into Google, you typed in luggage, some ad came up, you liked it, so you clicked on it. What should that person see? And we've made this guided shopping system that took a long time, and it was remarkably thoughtful. And we got done, we're like, oh man, this is gonna work. We're gonna start sending hundreds of thousands of people a month to this thing. And if it, and it's gonna work, it failed miserably. Like it just didn't work at all. And, and that's, that's an expensive screw up, right? That's an expensive screw up because you have a lot of people put a lot of time and energy into it. The human capital alone is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And for it not to work, it still came from a premise of, to use a term that you mentioned earlier, Nadine, of customer centricity. We're trying to help new visitors in the best way we know how. And we just didn't hit it out of the park on that one, but we still maintain that it's a problem for us that we need to get better at. And so, you know, I think that is kind of the, the, the thing. And then Behind the scenes, like multiple year engagements really are in the product, right? From things like uh, trying to use more recyclable materials. Um, can we put solar power in things? You know, uh, talk about a big swing and miss for a lot of people. A huge trend in luggage in particular was putting batteries in the bags and the FAA said, eh, not so much, needs to be removable, right? So like big swing and misses that are multiple years typically I think happen in product roadmaps. And for us, we're, we're taking a lot behind the scenes right now. Um, in sustainability in particular, because we think that's an area that we really have to win. Okay. So um, 
Okay, I could ask so many more questions about this, but I want to pivot a little bit because I want to talk about your path and how you got to to me. <laughs> Did you just wake up, you know, when you were in college or something and say, I'm going to be a chief digital officer? <laughs> no, I, I, I came by way of numbers, right? So I was good at math and started as an analyst at a digital-based company. And then that pivoted into digital advertising agency. And then I got picked up by Lucky Brand Jeans in Los Angeles when I was 25. Right. They so got that, lucky. Yeah, that was sort of the hop, <laughs> skip and a jump. But to me, it was amazing because um, if you ever want to hear about best laid plans, right, and that I, got, I had it all figured out, right? So I had just came out of a startup. Um, I, I made a deal that with, with my wife that we were going to live in New York for no more than three years. I always wanted to start in New York or live in New York and I always wanted to start a business. And so we did that. I always say, like, how many people get to live in New York City on their own terms? And we somehow pulled it off and loved it. But we always knew we wanted to live on the West Coast. So we moved back to Seattle. I thought I was going to start another business. And I actually worked at a venture capital firm as an entrepreneur in residence for six months. And I just couldn't find a thesis that fit venture capital multiples and also aligned with one of my passions, right? Because starting a business is, it's brutal, right? It's just a really all-encompassing thing that you have to do. And if you don't love it, you're going to burn out. I don't care who you are, right? So I came up with a couple of ideas and, and the managing partner of Maveron, a guy named Dan Levitan, would be like, I think that's a great idea. Do you want to do that? I'm like, no. He's like, then don't do that. Right? It's just like the simplest conversation on earth. So then, <laughs> so then I came home and um, I was talking to my wife and I'm like, you know, Alyssa, I am, at the time I was 32. I was like, I've had, um, my resume is sort of hard for recruiters to understand because I've had four exits. Like I've been involved in four companies that were bought or sold, either that I led or, you know, we were a private equity, so that was the goal. And so some recruiters see that and be like, oh, he's a flake, right? Like he's, he's bouncing around. Like, I don't, I don't want to put him in front of my, you know, hundred year old company, or I don't want to put him in front of Nike. I don't want to put him in front of Reebok because they won't like that. They want somebody who's had some loyalty. And so I said to Alyssa, I was like, you know, I'm going to find a big company that I'm passionate about and I'm going to stay there for three to five years, right? Just to stabilize my resume and kind of please the powers that be. And this is a remarkably pragmatic yet. I mean, it's sort of a hard thing to say out loud, but sometimes this is the way the world works right? Like you need to be able to play the game a little bit. And so it was like, I got done with that sentence and I'm like, you know, I'm going to find a place I want to be. And before I finished the E and B, my phone rang and it was the CEO of Toomey. It, wow. was, it was Jerome Griffith. And Jerome called me. He's like, look, I don't know who he's like, I had never heard your name before, but I asked somebody about, I was telling somebody about what I need. And someone said your name, like come to New York and interview there. And I'm like, dude, I am not moving back to New York. Like we, I just left, I'm in Seattle. We found a house that we love. And so he's like, I don't care. You're the digital guy. We'll figure it out. And so <laughs> I, I go and I meet with Jerome and it was just like an instant. I just, I, I just had an, he was, he's an amazing dude. Like, I mean, look, like, look at the results he had at Toomey and now look at the results he's having at Land's End as the CEO. He's also just a solid, solid guy. And I came back, I told him, listen, I'm like, this is it. Like, this is it. I love the brand Toomey. I've never worked for a brand I'm a consumer of. I love the CEO. He's a guy I feel like I can learn from. But at the same time, I feel like the digital department is a place I can make a lot of changes. This is it, Alyssa. I'm going to be there for three to five years. And I, the world is at our fingertips. And then four months in, we got acquired. And it's just like, you know, you can't plan every single move. Because I would say the Samsung acquisition of Toomey ended up being like one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Because now... I have that same passion about our sector. I mean, hell, I get to work in travel. Like how many people can say part of their job is to understand how people travel around the world. And also I have exposure now to multiple brands somewhere in the teens. I think it's 14 and 108 countries. 
and a $4 billion-ish revenue company. And now I get to touch it everywhere, right? I get to learn about Alibaba and I get to learn about uh, Mercado Libre and I get to learn about building a direct consumer website in Russia. You know what I mean? And it's just like, sometimes good things happen for a reason, even if it wasn't the plan that I had, you know, just, I had manifested was going to happen for me. <laughs> okay. So I, I'm laughing because I'm actually remembering being at dinner with you and your team. Was it like last year? Yeah, San Francisco. San Francisco. And, and it was such a cool idea. And for anybody who's out there, I encourage you to, to, to pull a Charlie where Charlie was coming to San Francisco and he just decided to invite all these different kinds of people to dinner just for fun. And uh, I got to meet your team, got to meet a lot of cool people, but your team loves you. And they were, they were totally um, teasing you a little bit. You, uh, I don't know if you want to tell anybody about this, but your passport story, do you oh, want to talk about that? Jeez. <laughs> Talk about a calamity. Um, so, so I have in the last, I don't know, it, it's funny, Nadine, I was actually um, renewing my passport today, not because it's ex- uh, expired, because I ran out of pages and they don't let you get extra pages anymore. Right. Oh, wow. so, so looking at my passport, I'm, I'm actually flipping through it. There is, you know, uh, let's see, I got a stamp from Korea, a stamp from Brazil, which is foreshadowing, by the way. Two from Amsterdam, Mexico, Chile, Brazil again. Uh, that's Japan. We got Amsterdam, Amsterdam, China three times. Um, uh, there's Paris, there's Brussels, there's Mexico again. There's more China. Uh, and again, I got this passport two years ago, give or take, right? And it's full. Dusseldorf. Um, oh, there's, you know, it's just, it's just bananas how much we, we kind of, we are a global organization. Like I said, I do believe that in-person stuff matters. So I'm an experienced traveler. So stuff like this shouldn't happen to experienced travelers. I was with my, my head of Latin America, a guy named Francisco, who's just like one of the nicest human beings on earth, and he's Chilean. And there's an interesting thing that, about sp- Spanish speakers versus Portuguese speakers, which is Spanish speakers cannot understand Portuguese at all, and Portuguese <laughs> speakers are pretty good at Spanish. So... We're in Chile, and now we're going to meet Brazil. We're going to go meet with our, our uh, uh, kind of third-party service partner in Brazil, and then we're going to go to Mexico City and meet with Mercado Libre. Great. That's the plan. We leave Santiago. Great trip in Chile. Get on the plane. Go to fly, land in Sao Paulo. I go and give my passport, and the lady says, visa. I'm like, come again? She's like, yeah, you need a visa. And so then Francisco tries to jump in, but he can't speak Portuguese. And all of a sudden, this guy just escorts me to a back room. He's like, dude, you can't come to Brazil without a visa. And so, so many people had to be stupid for this to happen, right? Like, my travel agent didn't help me. I didn't look. Francisco didn't look. Like, all of us screwed up. And ultimately, I completely blame myself for not checking. So now, he's going to be in Brazil for about 24 hours. And from some streak of just dumb luck, Sao Paulo is one of those airports that has a hotel behind security. So I go to the hotel. I'm in the airport. And they're like, yeah, we have a room tonight. I'm like, sweet. And so now Francisco is doing all these meetings. He's Skyping me into them. I'm sitting in my little hotel room and I'm Skyping into my meeting with all these meetings and every single one, they're just like, you didn't know you needed a visa, you moron. And I'm like, (laughs) no, I didn't know that. And the whole time in between the meetings, as he's driving from one to another Sao Paulo, or I should say riding, he's sending me pictures of like Edward Snowden or Tom Hanks character in the terminal. It's just like, this is you right now. So I'm, I, I, it did lead to one of the more interesting things I've ever done. My time was all out of whack because I, uh, I was a little bit off my time zone. So it was about one in the morning and I was like, I'm going to go work out. And they're like, oh, we don't have a gym in this hotel. I'm like, all right. 
So I went for a run in an empty airport terminal, which was one of the cooler things that I could say I've done. And it was all because I was an idiot and didn't know Brazil needed a visa. So yeah, that was, um, that was a relatively fresh wound at that point. So my team had a good time with me on that one. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> so I can't... remember to get your visa kids for Brazil. And I learned, a, <laughs> I learned a very important term when it comes to international relations. It's called, it's called reciprocity, which basically means if your country says somebody needs a visa to come to your country, the other country is going to make you need a visa. Hence, you need a visa to go to Brazil, but you don't need one to go to Chile or Mexico or, you know, anyways. So that, <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's so funny because um, I, I just went to Thailand and uh, I was going from Hong Kong to Thailand and it was about 20 minutes before we were landing. And all of a sudden I looked at my, my husband who I was traveling with and I said, do you know if we need a visa to get into Thailand? <laughs> you do not. You don't on that one. And thank God you do not, because I was so busy before I went. I didn't check, so I'm guilty too. Just yeah, in Indonesia and Malaysia, you do. FYI. Oh, okay. I, well, I, I I will check with you next. Uh, and the weirdest and the weirdest one to me, like to me, the one that I think is not obvious at all is Australia. But it's really easy because you can just register online. It's not like you need to go through the whole process and get a big page in your passport like you do with Brazil and China. <laughs> well, maybe Charlie, you should start a blog of your own. Oh no, about- they exist. They exist. I could have looked it up, but I just didn't look because I was dumb. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think you're tr- you should have a blog. It would be okay. really fun because yeah. you know you should take pictures, selfies of yourself running through the airports, and you know <laughs> secret tips for those travelers in need. Oh um, my goodness! Yeah, that would be amazing. Tip, tip number one: Don't be an idiot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Check that box. Well, oh my gosh, I could talk to you forever, but we are out of time except i have one last question shoot if you could be anything in the world other than what you are doing today for to me and sans tonight what would you do you know i actually have an answer to this question because i've okay so i want to own a bar in Manhattan Beach, California on the Strand. And it's going to be like an Italian themed bar. And my buddy, Michael Story, and I talked about this once where the hours would be on the sign noon-ish to two-ish would be the hours on the sign. It'd be (laughs) on the sand and it'd be noon-ish because then we'd play beach volleyball in Manhattan Beach in the morning and then like dust ourselves off and go open the bar. And it'd be two-ish because if we're having a good time at two, we'll just lock the door and then, you know, everybody can hang out for a while. But we want to do it Italian style. Where Italian style is, if you come in and start drinking, they just start feeding you. They start giving you little finger foods, right? And that's what Michael and I always wanted to do. And we actually went down the path uh, when I lived in the East Bay, when I lived in Emeryville, California, of seeing if we could find a place to do it in Emeryville. But we learned that getting a liquor license is really hard. But that's what I want to do. I want to own a bar, an Italian style bar slash restaurant on the strand of Manhattan Beach, noonish to two-ish, Michael Story, the chef, and my wife and I are serving drinks. That's the, uh, that's the dream. Okay, that's fantastic. And you're going to have to invite my friend, Karen Hannon, who is in LA from Belkin. He's a CMO of Belkin because his dream is to start a pub too. So maybe get some Irish flair in there as well. Oh, no, I know, Karen. Yeah, that's, that's a, we're on there. And maybe we'll get him like back to back. He can have the pub. I'll have like the wine cocktail bar and we'll just kind of trade customers back and forth. And if, you know, Maybe we'll get Michael to so, throw some finger foods over to Carrier Place too. <laughs> that sounds great. Okay, you have to invite me to opening night or opening afternoon, whatever you call it. That's, um, that's, a, that's a promise, but I can't tell you what time it's going to be because it's really approximate. That's the whole idea. That's part of the term. Okay, I love it. I love it. I, I look forward to that day. So, Charlie, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure to have you with me. It is amazing that we managed to finally get on the phone for 30 minutes. Uh, uh, we, we, miracles never cease, Nadine. 
No, no, they sure don't. But when it's meant to be, it's meant to be. So Indeed. this was meant to be. Thanks so much. And we'll talk again soon. Sounds good.